This is a very strange story. The kind of story that I think can leave you scratching your head. First, there's the leper. Well, it turns out that leprosy was a catch-all term for a wide range of skin diseases, and so we don't really know what this man had, what disease afflicted him. So what was wrong with him anyway? And then there's the posture of the man. Some ancient texts say that he was kneeling, others don't. Well, what was his posture anyway? Then there's the emotion felt by Jesus. My NRSV says he was moved by pity, but in a footnote it admits that other ancient manuscripts of Mark say that Jesus was moved by anger. Well, what was Jesus feeling anyway? Now, the next part is one we can hang our hats on. Jesus reached out and touched the man and said, I do choose, be made clean. And whatever skin disease the man was suffering from vanished. Then Jesus told the man to keep the whole thing a secret, which would be difficult, I would think, if the man had any friends or family. I mean, what was he supposed to do? Just act like nothing had happened? What leprosy? I don't see any leprosy. I mean, why ask the man to keep his healing a secret anyway? And then right after telling the man to keep it all secret, Jesus tells him to go and show himself to the priest and make the appropriate offering for his healing and to do so as a testimony to them. Now, why was it okay to tell the priest but not anyone else? And who exactly is this them that Jesus wanted the man to testify to anyway? And finally, there's the blatant disobedience of the healed man. No sooner does Jesus stop talking than the man is spreading the word. And so wide was the spreading that Jesus couldn't go anywhere without a crowd gathering. In fact, the healed man's blabbing forced Jesus to avoid towns altogether for a while and instead to stay out in the country. But then the towns came to him as people from all over the place tracked Jesus down. I mean, why was the healed man so disobedient as to disregard the one thing Jesus asked him not to do? Anyway. It's a strange story, I think, one that can leave you scratching your head, the kind of story that, I think, raises more questions than it answers. I mean, what was wrong with the man anyway? Well, we don't know. Some disease of the skin, something that would have been obvious to others, um, something that probably disfigured him in some way, disfigured him enough to keep him from participating in the normal routines of Jewish life. And this is probably as close to an answer as we can get and maybe as close to an answer as, well, we really need to get. After all, the man's diagnosis is not really the point of the story, right? So we'll call that question settled. The man was afflicted with some kind of disease of the skin which made him ritually unclean and maybe marginalized by his community and so very eager for healing. Well, what was the man's posture? Was he kneeling or not? Some ancient manuscripts say he was, others don't say anything about his posture. Now, it is clear that he was begging for healing, and so the kneeling fits. Uh, on the other hand, they taught us in seminary to be suspicious of things that fit too well. In this case, I think we can imagine maybe some well-intended scribe copying the text of Mark from some earlier manuscript and maybe deciding to add a little more detail to the story, a detail in line with the fact that the man was said to be begging, a detail that would highlight the dignity of Jesus. A scribe, I think, would be less likely to remove such a detail than he might be to add it. Now, in and of itself, the presence or absence of the word kneeling, well, it doesn't really amount to much. But combined with all the other oddities in the story, it, it, it 
sort of adds to the whole head-scratching thing. And what exactly was Jesus feeling anyway? Here the variant readings become more interesting. Whether the man was kneeling or not kneeling, I think, is a minor detail, amply covered by the statement of the fact that he was begging for healing. Here, though, we're confronted with two very different uh, options. Was Jesus moved by pity or anger? Now, pity, of course, fits, right? The man was in need. His disease was obvious. Who would not feel pity for him? And pity, compassion, a desire to heal, that sounds like Jesus, right? Which brings us back to that imaginary scribe busily copying Mark's gospel in some dank monastery basement. He's going along just fine, maybe adding the word kneeling, maybe not. Then he comes across this line which says that Jesus was moved by anger, and he thinks to himself, well, that can't be right. Somebody must have made a mistake in an earlier copying job, a, a typo, if you will, and switched the word pity for anger. Anger is clearly a mistake, he thinks. Anger makes no sense in this context, and it doesn't sound right. It, it raises questions about Jesus. It doesn't sound right. And so our copyist makes a switch, what he thinks is a switch back. Moved by pity, he writes. And having the change move in that direction, well, that makes sense. Having it go the other way, imagining some copyist taking out pity and replacing it with anger makes much less sense, which means we could, um, using those tried and true principles learned in seminary, we could decide that the word anger is the better choice because it's the more difficult choice. On the other hand, people a lot smarter than I am have opted for the word pity, and it does make better sense. And so here I am back to scratching my head. Pity, anger, anger, pity. A pity that we understand. Who among us could walk through a hospital and see all the patients suffering from a multitude of illnesses and diseases and not feel pity? Who among us does not feel sorry for one in need? And, well, we should. It's a human thing. So we do understand. Most of us feel a compulsion to help, to lend a hand, to reach out and touch the one in need, to pray for healing. I mean, isn't that why we were so appalled at the slow and inadequate response, say, to Hurricane Katrina? I mean, how can anyone not be moved to pity by such tragedy and act immediately to mitigate its effects, to rescue and restore and bring healing? I mean, what kind of people would just sit back and watch a disaster unfold? Pity. I mean, that we understand. That makes sense to us. It's one of the things that makes us human beings, the ability to see somebody else in need and to care about it enough to respond to that need. Anger. Well, that we understand, too, uh, though it's an emotion that we find less acceptable than pity. Uh, we Mennonites don't trust anger. We question its motives. We fear its consequences. It seems violent, unstable, untrustworthy, unbecoming. And yet, aren't we stirred to anger when we see suffering in our world? Doesn't the very existence of suffering make us angry sometimes? If not at another human being, then dare I say it, at God? I mean, why does God allow suffering? That's the perennial, unanswerable question. Why doesn't God do anything to save, to heal, to fix all that is broken in us and around us? It's to questions like that that I think our anger leads us, and our questions then in turn feed our anger. And sometimes our anger leads us to act, to resist evil, to stand for what is good and necessary, to fight, if you will, or whatever it will take to meet the needs of others, to reach out maybe and touch somebody our culture has named unclean. And so perhaps 
make them well. Anger, pity. We can't say for sure which word Mark actually wrote, and we are even less able to say what Jesus actually felt when he encountered the man suffering with some unknown disease, the feeling as it happened rather than as it was later described by Mark. And here, too, maybe it really doesn't matter. What matters is what came next. Jesus did choose to heal the man, and the man was healed. But perhaps by now you're weary of asking questions of this story. Um, I am, too. And so we can leave the others, the questions about why Jesus told the man to keep the healing a secret and why he told him to tell the priest and make the sacrifice in order to testify to some unknown them and why the man completely disobeyed Jesus only moments after being healed and being commanded to keep his mouth closed. Whatever answers we come up with will likely be as uncertain as the ones already attempted. Too many questions, too few solid answers. A strange story indeed, an unsettling story, the kind of story that may leave us scratching our heads. A story that leaves us scratching our heads, which is pretty much the same effect, I think, that questions of suffering and evil have upon us, the same effect that questions about healing have upon us. All those why questions that we can much of the time avoid, but sometimes catch us up and trip us up and tangle us up in a mess of conflicting emotions and thoughts. I mean, why does this happen in this case but not in the other? And why does God, or why doesn't God, or why you, or why me? And on and on, the trail is never-ending and comfortless, a trail that moves up and down and backwards and forwards like some nauseating amusement park ride that just keeps going on long after we've asked to get off. On those occasions when a prayer is answered in just the way we'd hoped, and thanks be to God, those occasions do come. On those occasions, we can understand the compulsion the healed man felt to tell everybody. We may not condone his disobedience or wish to emulate it, but it's terribly hard to stay silent when we felt God's hand touch our need and bring about some healing. In fact, we've learned that we ought to tell such stories. We ought to bear witness. We ought to testify to what God has done in our lives. Testimony is good for us. It makes that touch of God's hand seem more concrete. It kind of nails it down in a way. And it also can revive the faith of friends and neighbors alike. See, look what happened. Look what God did. And our friends and neighbors not only are themselves moved by our witness, but then they can turn around sometime later when we've forgotten what happened and remind us of that. They can bear witness to us of what happened to us long ago. And they can invite us to remember God's touch, God's faithful act, and then give us the opportunity to believe it all over again which is a gift, because we know that there will be other occasions when despite our most fervent prayer, healing will not come, or at least not in the clear way that it came to the man with the skin disease. On those occasions, the proof we need that God listens and that Jesus does choose to heal us, well, that proof is sometimes harder to come by. No suddenly clean skin to go by. When questions arise and our faith is tested. I remember some years ago, when our brother Luke Shank, a former member of our congregation, suddenly became ill and died. And I remember walking around for probably the next couple of weeks in a, in a daze, in a fog, trying to figure out how death could come so quickly, so unexpectedly, to one who seemed so healthy. How death could come to one I consider to be a saint, 
not perfect or haloed, but a good and faithful person with lots of grace and wisdom to share. How could this happen? How could this happen? Why would it happen? I was sad. I was angry. I wondered why God didn't answer my prayers. I wondered why God didn't answer the prayers of Luke's family and friends. I found myself sitting on the front row of that terrible amusement park ride. I remember talking with Luke's son sometime later. I can't remember exactly what we talked about or how the conversation kind of went in this particular direction, but I do remember Dwayne offering me comfort by telling me something about healing, something I believe that he heard from his father, that there was a difference between being cured and being healed, and that we often confuse the two and so end up disappointed with the power of our prayers and even with God. But, Duane said, it was Luke's belief that the absence of a cure did not mean that there was no healing, no answer or touch from God, that healing was often less obvious, harder to see and to recognize, sometimes taking time to see and to recognize, often best identified long after the fact. Dwayne's testimony, one that he'd received from his father, Luke, was that even when we cannot see it, or when it looks completely different than we'd hoped, healing is happening. God is working. The hand of Christ is reaching out to touch us and make us whole. I've never forgotten that testimony. It sustained me many times when the suffering of others or my own misery has made me wonder whether or not Jesus is choosing to ignore my pleas. It's not always easy to hang on to, I confess. My faith is often pretty small. But I remember, and so I'm lifted up, at least lifted up enough to keep on believing. And that's no small thing. It's maybe even a kind of miracle, which makes me pretty sympathetic to our healed friend. Yes, he disobeyed. Yes, he spilled the beans on what biblical scholars sometimes call the messianic secret and so forced Jesus to change his plans and move out of town ahead of schedule. But who knows how many people's faith was buoyed up by his blabbing? How many of his friends and neighbors began actively seeking Jesus or stayed awake at night contemplating God's mercy or were rescued from despair at a prayer apparently unanswered? Maybe this recalcitrant man is a stand-in for all of us who've known Christ's touch and feel compelled to share it no matter what. Maybe he's an example for us too, an example of what even a less-than-obedient, formerly unclean babbler can accomplish when all he does is tell the story of meeting Jesus. We may not be ready to condone his actions, but we still find just a wee bit of inspiration in him a little sign of hope for us, equally unfaithful, but also blessed followers of the one whose touch both cleansed us and caused us to follow along after, talking our fool heads off and perhaps calling a few to come walk with us. Sources of pity and anger both, and probably at the same time, still witnesses to what happens when Jesus comes to town and we have the nerve to ask for a miracle, to cry out for healing, and to believe, often against the evidence, to believe that Jesus did choose to heal us, even if our only proof is the sound of our voice bearing witness and the sound of our sisters and brothers doing the same. I wish I could make bigger promises. I wish I could say, like the television preacher, that 
All you need to do is pray in faith and your disease will be cured, your marriage will be saved, your depression will be lifted, and your finances will be salvaged. I wish I could make promises like that. But to be honest, such wishes come from my ego, my wish to make all things right, to be the go-to guy, the haloed one with an inside corner on God and Jesus tight in my hip pocket. There's probably more to it than that, with at least some of my wishing springing from more noble ground. But I have to admit that the thought of being a miracle worker is pretty seductive, which means it's probably just as well that it's a wish that will not come true. Like a gospel story, my contemplation of suffering and healing leaves me with more questions than answers. I don't have any secret formula to unveil. I don't have any clever code or wonderful key that will unlock the door to God's will and so put the Holy One at our beck and call. I have only the same questions which I suspect all believers have. Why questions? Questions whose source is sometimes pity, sometimes anger, and sometimes both. Questions whose final answers will only come if the songwriter is right. Farther along. Until then... Until then, we keep on following the one whose touch we can still recall and so long for always, walking together, limping at times, leaping and praising at others, but still walking after Jesus and trusting our destinies, our lives, our bodies and minds and spirits to him, trusting that he chose our healing a long, long time ago and chooses it still, trusting that healing even when all the evidence points the other way. A little bit later this morning, we'll be called to such an act of trust during our community lifetime. You'll be invited to come forward, if you will, to receive prayer or anointing for healing. Healing for yourself, healing for someone you love, healing for our world. And in so doing, you place yourself once again into the tender care of God. You may do so with great confidence. You may do so cautiously. You may do so alone. You may do so with a companion. However you come, however you come, know that Christ does choose your healing. In fact, Christ chose it long ago. Some of you may be cured. All of you will be healed. Whether you know it or not, whether you feel it or not, I am here to believe with you that you will be touched by Christ and that healing will come. What that will look like what that will look like, only God can say. But that it will come, God has already said. Like our gospel story, our experiences with suffering can leave us with more questions than answers. But like the story, like the story, at the heart of that tangle of questions, there lies a simple fact, a clear act of Christ in response to someone's cry for healing, a simple touch of the Lord's hand on the head or the hands or the shoulders of the one in need. When all the questions are asked and all the tangles are swept away, that center will hold. Healing will remain. For Christ has chosen it. Christ has chosen it. For the man with the unknown skin disease, for you, for me, for the world, may God make it so. Amen.